I do want to say a big thank you to everybody who, uh, well, just in general, who serves in the church. It's so great to be able to go on vacation. Somebody asked me, like, do you get nervous? I'm like, no, because the people of Orchard are going to just keep doing the things that the people of Orchard do, and it's, it's going to be a great Sunday. But a special thanks to Chris for uh, stepping up and preaching. He also took over my Sunday school class. Uh, so thank you so much for that. But it is good to be back with you. We're going to be talking about peace today. And what does it mean to be a peaceful or a peace-filled church? What does that look like? What does that mean and why does it matter? And I want to start by just asking the question I threw out in the email that went out, which is kind of what's your picture of peace? And, And I mentioned in the email that I was looking out on a scene as I wrote that email. This is the scene that I was looking out on. This is the scene in the backyard of the cabin that we rent in the Adirondacks. This is our, I think this was our fifth year going there. Um, so it's, it's, it's interesting to go on vacation and kind of feel like you're coming home in a sense because we've just gotten so used to it. But it's a beautiful picture. And it can't, well, actually, it's a terrible picture, but it's a beautiful scene. I'm just not a good photographer. Uh, but there's the whole lake, and this is just a little bit of it, it's just surrounded by mountains. There's an island. Oh, yeah, you can, oh, I'm going to use the laser pointer. Here you go. There's an island over here. We call this Eagle Island. I don't know if that's the official name, but there's, there's actually a pair of uh, bald eagles that live on the island, and we get to see them flying overhead. And it's just a beautiful picture. And one of our favorite things, I think for my wife and I especially, there's some Adirondack chairs you can't see, but they're sitting kind of right here looking out on this scene. And in the morning, we love just going out there, and sitting and reading our Bibles and reading books. And it's just such a peace-filled scene. You can hear the loons off in the distance. Sometimes you can hear the eagles. It's just beautiful. At night, the stars come out. You can see more stars than you can possibly imagine. It is so peace-filled. And yet, there is a sense in which I can't live there. I can't live in what this picture captures for me. Because even if I lived there in that house, I wouldn't experience that peace all the time. Things break, things come up, second to last day, third to last day before we came home, my son got a rock in his foot, we had to go to the emergency room, and it was a whole to-do, he's got a hole in his foot now, it's great. Things happen. Peace doesn't last all that long. Things come up. And I want to think about peace in Scripture, because peace is actually a major theme that runs all throughout scripture. Think about it. From the very beginning, God creates us to live in this perfect environment, the Garden of Eden, in a perfect relationship with him, perfect relationship with other human beings. This is the perfect picture of peace throughout scripture. Everything is operating the way it should. The the Hebrews had this word shalom. It's the Jewish word for peace, but it's so much deeper than just an absence of fighting. It's everything working, being exactly the way it's supposed to be, and feeling at peace because it's all working the way God intended it. But of course, Genesis moves on. The serpent comes along, Adam and Eve sin, and suddenly the course of human history takes this huge U-turn away from peace. And we get into the rest of the Old Testament. As you get into Joshua and Judges, there's this This promise throughout the book of Exodus, as they're in slavery, there's this promised land of peace that God's going to take them to. And once again, peace is this distant thing that they're hoping for. 
And then they get there in Joshua and Judges, and if you're familiar with the biblical story, it's anything but peaceful. Chris preached on Samson from Judges last week. When he told me what he was preaching on, I was like, are you sure? Samson's pretty messed up. And I think you did a good job. We actually did listen online uh, on vacation, so that was, that was really cool to be able to participate with you. You did a good job. I'll talk to you about a few things later, but for the most part, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> it was great. But it's messed up. The time of the judges, they're in the land of peace, experiencing the peace that God had promised them. And yet, as Chris pointed out last week, there's this refrain throughout the book of Judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everybody just kept doing what they thought they wanted to do, and chaos ensued in the land of Israel. So here they are in the promised land of peace, and yet they are experiencing no peace at all. As the Old Testament goes on, there's this promised king that would come and deliver them and make everything right and settle the land, and peace would come, and King David is raised up, and he's this wonderful, godly man who's also kind of screwed up in some ways. And he does great godly things, and he also screws up in some ways. And there's great peace in the land, but there's also kind of not. And then David passes away, and even before he passes away, his children are fighting over the kingdom. Civil war breaks out. The nation of Israel, this land of peace, is split in two, and eventually each half is taken into captivity. And again, the prophets raise up this refrain of this peace that God will bring. This peace when he will bring them back home to the promised land. And we went through, a couple years ago, we went through the book of Nehemiah, Ezra and Nehemiah. And they they get home and they get in the promised land and there's there's no peace at all. So this constantly happens throughout the Old Testament. But then we get to the New Testament. And the new Adam comes along, Jesus Christ. And the new David comes along, Jesus Christ. The new king and prince of peace comes along, Jesus Christ. He comes to bring a true, meaningful, lasting peace. He dies on the cross to save us from our sins, solving the fundamental issue that has broken peace ever since Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3. Because he took our payment for our sins that we might be saved And we can again have peace. And if we fast forward to Revelation, we see the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus comes and the kingdom of heaven descends onto this earth. And all those saved by Jesus will live in eternal and everlasting peace. But I skipped something, didn't I? I skipped the time between Jesus dying on the cross and raising from the dead and Jesus' return. And in between that time, do you know what we find? Us. Here and now. The church. What is the role of the church in between the time of the cross and the empty tomb on one hand and the return of Jesus Christ on the other hand? What is our role? Our role is to be a picture of, an example of God's peace in this sinful, conflicted, and chaotic world. That's what our role is here. It is a peace that can only be achieved through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so as we come to the end of the book of 1 Thessalonians, we're going to look at several things that Paul mentions as he concludes this letter. I was talking to somebody, I think it was Katie, I was talking to someone about like how many more weeks we have. 
And there's not much left in the book. I mean, we're here. There's just a couple more lines. We're going to take about four weeks on those lines. <laughs> because what Paul does, and he does this all the time at the end of his books, he just makes lists. And, and I can just try to get through all of them at once, or we can try to break them down into manageable portions, which is what we're going to be doing over the next couple of weeks. But we're in this sermon series called Faith Out Loud, and, and Paul writes to this church, baby brand new church. Paul goes to the city of Thessalonica, and he preaches the gospel. People come to know Jesus as their Savior, and that's where a church is born. It's not about building a building or raising funds. It's about people receiving Jesus as their Savior. That's how a church is started. But then, as we've talked about, Paul had to leave very quickly. He was run out of town through persecution. His life was on the line. Other people around them were being persecuted because of Paul. And so he gets chased out of that city, goes to another city, gets chased out of that city, eventually has to flee the whole region. And he's writing this letter back to them because he was so concerned about how they were doing, knowing that they were facing persecution. But he hears, he hears from his friend Timothy, they're doing great. But he writes this letter to encourage them, but also to challenge them and teach them some things. And one of the things he encourages them in is this idea of living their faith out loud. They are known for being Christians. They're not hiding their Christianity. They're not hiding their faith. They're not being rude and obnoxious, but they are living for Jesus in a very difficult situation. But they are struggling with some things. And so here Paul is writing to focus them on what's most important. And at the beginning of the book, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, he greets them and he has a phrase that he uses in many of his letters, which is grace and peace. And grace was a very common Greek way of, of welcoming people or saying hi. Peace was a very Jewish way. And so Paul would combine these two things. And for him, I think that phrase, grace and peace, is really a summary of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the concept of peace comes up several times throughout this book. In chapter 5, verse 3, he says that some people in the Thessalonian church, uh, maybe in the culture or maybe some, some leaders in the church, but they were saying, peace and safety, everything's fine. But Paul's talking about, well, actually, Jesus is going to come back. And these things that people are saying are fine, they're going to be judged and wiped away. So there is a picture of peace or a sense of peace or a goal of peace in Scripture that we have to learn is false. It's a false peace. It's a lie that some people were buying into. And at the end of this letter, in the passage we're going to look at today, in chapter 5, verse 13, Paul commands them to live at peace with each other. And then in verse 23, which we'll cover later on in the sermon series, he says, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. And those two phrases, live at peace with each other, and then may the God of peace sanctify you through and through, they become the bookends for what we're going to talk about today and over the next week or two. The Thessalonians, like us today, they wanted peace. They were living in a world that was changing constantly, where it seemed like people were out to get them for their faith. They were struggling to find peace. And Paul points them to Jesus Christ. That their ultimate peace is to be found in God through his son, Jesus Christ. 
And he wants them then as the church, the gathered Christians, to be a living example, a living demonstration of this peace that everybody in the world is looking for. We become, as the church, the thing that God can hold up in the world and say, this is what my son has accomplished. So what does it mean to be a peaceful or peace-filled church? First and foremost, it means to be a church that trusts in and is shaped by, saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's all throughout Paul's letters, all throughout the book of Thessalonians. But as we get into this passage, Paul's going to get into practicalities of what this looks like in the local church. What are some things that must be included in a peace-filled church? And Paul says we have to get three relationships right in a peace-filled church. And the first one he's going to talk about is the relationship with church leaders. Second one is relationship with others in the church. And the third one is our day-to-day ongoing relationship with God. So let's look at this passage. Let's start by, let me just read the whole thing, and then we'll walk through it. Chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, verses 12 through 22. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all, hold on to what is good, reject every kind of evil. So let's start with what he talks about with the role of leaders in the church. What is the role of leaders and what's the relationship between people and church leaders in a peace-filled church? And I know for some, this is like getting into church politics and you just kind of want to tune out. Don't tune out. Because whether this is your church or somewhere else, it gets to the heart of what is God's role for leaders in this world and how are we to relate to other spiritual leaders in our life? Leaders in scripture, or maybe I should say leaders according to scripture, are necessary and part of God's plan. We live in a world where unfortunately many leaders are doing things unbecoming of leaders. It seems like Every week, every other week, we hear a new story about some either secular leader or even Christian leaders that have done something horribly wrong. In the case of Christian leaders, too often it's someone who has fallen into sin. And so as people in the world today, we see these horrible examples of leaders over and over again. And it makes us question, why do we need leaders? Let's just do away with leaders. Wouldn't we be better without them? Scripture affirms again and again that God has a plan for leaders. And he has a plan for leadership in the local church. And so Paul says in verse 12, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you. That ask is its kind of a funny word. We ask you. This is Paul the apostle with all the authority of his apostleship, the calling of Jesus Christ, in that word, asking. Hey guys, I'm asking. This is not a favor, this is a command. 
This is Paul telling the church, here's what you must do. And what he says is, you must acknowledge those who work hard among you. And he gives three things that these people are doing. Those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. And then he says, here's how you are to relate to them. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Now, it's important to understand what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about leaders in the local church. This church of Thessalonica was a brand new church. Anywhere from a few months to to maybe a year old at this point. And somehow, in some way, we don't know if Timothy had gone and appointed leaders or if leaders had just risen up within the church, but there were people that had risen up in the church in positions of leadership. And he tells the rest of the church to acknowledge them. That's kind of an awkward word. Acknowledge them. That's not like, hey, what's up? I acknowledge your existence. The word means to recognize their position, their authority, and their service. It is to recognize that they are leaders. That they have a particular and special role in the church, which is to provide leadership. There were those in Thessalonica who were serving the church as leaders, and the rest of the church is called to acknowledge, respect, and even submit to that leadership. God has a plan for leadership in the local church. So who are these leaders and what are they doing? He says, well, they are those who work hard among you. Church leaders are to work hard in difficult labor for the sake of the church. What are they supposed to be doing? What is it that the church leaders should be focused on? There's many clues in Scripture about the highest call of what church leaders should be focused on. One is in Acts 6. You don't have to turn there. But in Acts 6, there's an issue that comes up with certain people in the church aren't being cared for. And the apostles appoint leaders to oversee this distribution of food. But in that, they say specifically... We will appoint these leaders so that we, the apostles, at that time the highest level of leaders in the church, can focus on the word of God, or some say the ministry of the word of God, and prayer. The teaching and preaching of the word of God and prayer. In Acts chapter 20, Paul meets with a group of leaders from the Ephesian church. Paul is on his way to what he knows will lead to his arrest and possible death. He believes, rightly so in this case, that this will be the last time he'll see them. And these are his parting instructions to them. And he says to them, keep watch over yourselves and over all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. And then Paul makes it very clear what they're supposed to be watching out for. He says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. Paul is saying what church leaders, especially the highest level of leadership in church, where they need to be spending the most amount of their time and the hardest of their work, what they need to focus on is the knowing of the word of God and the preaching and teaching of the word of God in order to guard the church against false teaching. Now, this is hard, and, and I can speak from experience. Not, 
I would say not so much here at this church, but as a pastor, as a leader in the church, there's a lot of expectations put on you. Be involved in all these different things. Do all these different things. Be good at all these different things. But the focus of leaders in the church, myself and the other elders, has to be the ultimate care of the church, which is the preaching and teaching of the word of God. So when Paul talks about these leaders who are working hard among them, they are working hard to guide them, to shepherd them, and to protect the church according to the word of God. And Paul says, acknowledge those people. Understand that they're doing exactly what they need to be doing. There's something funny that has happened over my years of ministry here. We have a sign-up sheet for mowing the yard. And I used to sign up for it. And I would come back, and every time my name was crossed out. And somebody else's name was put in its place. And I would have someone gently pull me aside and say, you need to be focusing on something else. I appreciate that. I don't mind mowing the grass from time to time. But I appreciate the sentiment that I need to be focusing on the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God as Elders in this church, myself, Chris Vincent, and Steve's here somewhere. Oh, there he is, Steve Galata. We gather together, and in our time, we are pouring over the Word of God and praying for you guys. And when things come up in the church, we're pouring over the Word of God to say, how do we respond to this? What do our people need to be encouraged and challenged in, in the Word of God? So when Paul says, those who work hard over you, We need to learn and make sure as churches that we are appreciating and valuing the important role of studying, preaching, and teaching the Word of God in the church. I'm not saying that's all that leaders should be doing, but it is the primary thing that leaders must be doing. He goes on to say, those who care for you in the Lord. This is a tricky translation. Other translations say those who are over you in the Lord. But in general, this idea of caring has this idea of fulfilling a role of leadership in order to help those who are under them. The care that the NIV speaks of here is not so much of of like, you know, sending a card and, and helping someone. It's the care of a position. This word would be used for a commanding officer caring for their shoulder their their soldiers by giving commands it could be used of in today's language a boss or a manager who cares for their employees by giving them proper direction it it can be definitely used of a shepherd who cares for sheep by leading them now let's be clear some leaders do this better than others and what we think of as caring for people is definitely involved in what Paul's talking about but he is specifically talking about fulfilling the role. And he clarifies that this role is in the Lord. The role of church leaders is always under the authority of the ultimate role of Jesus Christ. I don't get to stand up here and say, well, I'm the pastor and this is what I say and you just all have to do it. I have to get up here and say, this is what Jesus says. And let's look at it together so we can be led by Jesus together. Because it's not my authority that I'm up here preaching. It's not the elders' authority that we're using to lead the church. It has to be the authority of Jesus Christ through the Word of God. So the criteria of leaders here is not 
whether or not you're doing what we want you to do, or rather your criteria of us is not whether or not we're doing what you want us to do as leaders. It's are we following the word of God? Are we faithfully preaching and teaching and leading according to the word of God? He goes on to talk about those who admonish you. These are not separate groups. They're all the same. Those who admonish you. Another translation is give you instruction. This is a teaching that is corrective. Leaders, as we teach and preach the word of God, as part of that role, we have to come alongside people and say, you're going in the wrong direction. You're thinking about this incorrectly. Let's go back to the word of God. Leaders must instruct and even correct those in the church. And as leaders lead this way, how does the church respond? Verse 13, hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Honor those leaders by admitting that they have those roles. Submit to those leaders as they properly fulfill those roles and do so in love, not begrudgingly, not constantly arguing or undermining, not spreading gossip or rumors, but in love. Holding accountable? Absolutely. If the leaders, myself or anybody else in this church or any church you're a part of, walks away from the word of God, speak up and challenge them. But as leaders are leading according to the word of God, seek to understand, ask good questions, absolutely. But then follow if they are leading you according to the word of God. There are so many different levels of leadership in the church. Yes, we have elders for us as a local church. That's, that's our highest uh, local group of leaders. But there are also those that serve in children's ministry, that serve in classrooms, youth group, that serve in overseeing the buildings and the grounds. And you might have someone in your life as you serve in a church or maybe in the world that they're in leadership over you. How are you treating that person? Are you honoring them? Are you making their life difficult? Are you submitting to them and showing love? Paul says that to be a peace-filled church, we must properly respond to and relate to our leaders. In fact, that's where he goes at the end of verse 13. He says, live with peace or in peace with each other. And so all of this stuff about church leadership has as its goal to live in peace with each other in the church. Which means if we get church leadership wrong and our relationship with church leaders wrong, there will be no peace in the church. But peace in the church also has to do with how we relate to one another. And that's where Paul goes next. The relationship between members in the peace-filled church. How we relate to one another in the church is a proclamation and a demonstration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Have you heard of the Lord's Prayer? Maybe some of you have memorized that. It's interesting because the better Lord's Prayer is actually John 17. In John 17, Jesus Christ, before he goes to the cross, he prays. The Lord prays. The one that most people learn as the Lord's Prayer should probably be called the Disciples' Prayer because the Lord teaches us to pray that. But in John 17, Jesus prays for us. Do you know one of the things he prays for? That's at the heart and soul of his prayer? It's the unity of among his followers. 
the relationship between his followers, specifically the unity that they have in the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus says in his prayer is linked to, tied to the rest of the world accepting that Jesus Christ came from God. Relationships in the church matter. It's part of our identity as Christians. It's part of our identity as a local church. And it's an essential part of our evangelistic efforts in this world. So we have to understand and accept the responsibility we all have with each other in relationship in the local church. And so again, Paul uses strong language. I urge you, brothers and sisters, I urge you, get this right. And he talks about three different types of people in the church and how to relate to them. And then one way to relate to everyone. He says, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, and then be patient with everyone. Let's start with that phrase, warn those who are idle and disruptive. That's the way the NIV says it. Those words, idle and disruptive, are actually one word in the Greek. And unfortunately, we don't have a great English word to translate it. And so some of your translations will just use the word idle, which kind of seems like these are just lazy people, but that's not really what they are. They're not just people wasting time. And I think the NIV's actually done a good job by using two words because that's what the Greek word means. They are being disruptive and that's causing them to be idle, or they're being idle and that's causing them to be disruptive. It means that they are disorderly. There's something they should be doing, but instead of doing that, they're causing trouble. They're disruptive. There are always those in local churches that want to complain about everything, undermine what's going on, try to gather others to their opinions or their sides of an argument. Instead of serving faithfully, living in the the life of the roles of the church, they're busy causing trouble. It seems that there were those in Thessalonica specifically that were spending their time spreading false teaching about the return of Jesus Christ. In fact, this becomes a major topic in 2 Thessalonians, a follow-up letter to the one we're looking at. And Paul says that the way the people of the church should respond to these people is to warn them or admonish them. It is not to coddle or give in to them. It is to challenge and correct them. Keeping peace in the church requires that the idle and disruptive people in the church are warned through proper biblical correction. That's hard. Because we look at the church as kind of a a hospital, and the hospitals where all the hurting should come, and they should be made to feel better. And there's a sense of truth in that, but it's a very small picture of the local church. The local church is more than just a hospital. We're an outpost. We're an outpost for the kingdom of God on mission for God. And that means, yes, there's times that people need to be led to the hospital in the church and be cared for. We'll talk about that. But there's other times they need to be corrected. Because the peace within the church requires that those causing that trouble within the church be lovingly and patiently corrected. Paul goes on, he says, encourage the disheartened. These are people that are in danger of giving up. These are people that are struggling to trust in Jesus Christ and live in a fallen world with difficult situations. 
and they're getting discouraged. And the emphasis here is to come alongside those that are struggling in their faith. A peace-filled church will come alongside those struggling with doubts, facing persecution or even rejection because of their faith. We will encourage them, lift them up, point them to Scripture, pray with them, listen to them, come alongside them, encourage them and walk with them as they keep on following Jesus Christ. This is one of the things I love about Orchard Community Church is the way that you people treat one another. You encourage those who are struggling. You gather together with them. The stories I hear of meeting somebody for coffee, get a phone call or an email, coming alongside someone who is struggling. And maybe you're here today and that's you. You're the one going, I just don't know if I can make it another day. I don't know about this whole Christian thing. I want you to know that a good local church should be a place where people will come alongside you, pray with you, encourage you, help you to keep on going. A third group that Paul talks about in the churches is those who are weak and must be helped. Weak in this sense can mean those struggling with physical ailments, a sickness, they're weak in body. Weak can also mean, according to their culture, those who are struggling with situations in life where they are hurting due to circumstances beyond their control. Could be facing the loss of a job, persecution, or even discrimination. These are people in the church who are seeking to live for Jesus Christ. They're doing their best, but they just can't keep up. Whether it's paying the bills, living in society, there is something that is hindering them, and they need help. And there is a call throughout Scripture for the church to help those who are weak in this way. We have a fund here at church. We collect money every month. It goes into a special fund to help those in our church and in our society that are struggling financially. We seek to be faithful to this. We have a meals ministry. Maybe you see the emails that go out. And if you'd like to be a part of it, contact Kathy in the church office. But uh, who was it that had the twins? Your son, daughter? Sorry, somebody had twins. Anyway, she had to go back into the hospital. I saw the email on vacation that that the meals ministry has has stepped up because they've got to watch the other kids while the mom went back in the hospital. This is part of caring for the weak. They need help. There's nothing wrong with them. They didn't mess up. They need help. And people step up and help them. Finally, Paul says, be patient with everyone. Even as we warn those who are idle and disruptive, We must be patient with them. As we deal with those who are disheartened and struggling, we must be patient with them. Those who are weak and suffering, we must be patient with them. In fact, I think we could apply this. I would love to see this applied as well to how we relate to church leaders. Be patient with them. We're growing too. Jesus isn't done with us yet. And I need to point out something particular here. These three things that Paul talks about, where he says warning those who are idle and disruptive, encouraging the disheartened and help the weak, along with being patient with everyone. These three things challenge both conservative and liberal ways of thinking. Both Republican and Democrat ideologies are challenged by these few phrases. And I just want to suggest, Christians, 
that we need to make sure that on the one hand, the idle and the disruptive must be challenged and not coddled. There's a whole ideology in American culture that we go, amen, that's the way it is. On the other hand, the weak, according to scripture, must be helped. There's another American ideology would go, amen to that. They probably use, wouldn't use the word amen. But they'd say, right on. And those two groups hate each other. And Christians often find themselves in one of those two groups. Christians, we must be defined by the gospel of Jesus Christ, not by the shallow and consistently changing labels of our world. Our identity is in Christ and Christ alone. Stop letting the world define the sides of the argument. Let's look at it through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul clarifies what this looks like in verse 15. We are not to pay back wrong for wrong. It was interesting digging into this because in their culture, not all of it, but many aspects of their culture, it was actually held up as a virtue to seek vengeance on those who had harmed you. There was like a letter from a mother to her children. How would you not find vengeance on this person? Are you going to be weak? Weak was actually despised in their culture. And yet Paul says, do not pay back wrong for wrong. This is consistently taught against in scripture. We believe in a gospel of grace, which says God does not treat us according to our sins. He shows us mercy and grace. We are to treat others the same way. If we are to demonstrate the peace of Christ to this world, we must treat one another according to the gospel of grace and mercy. And instead of treating people with vengeance, he says, always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. A peace-filled church has godly leaders who lead the church, godly people who relate to others in the church according to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And finally, in our day-to-day life, We must allow our relationship with God to influence everything that we do. How do we live as Christians in our day-to-day life? What does this look like? Paul gives us some very practical instruction. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. Taking all of these together, this is the picture of someone whose heart is focused on God in their day-to-day life, in all situations, no matter what's going on in their world or in their life at that moment. They are aware of, conscious of, and paying attention to the truth that God is always present with them, always at work, and always has a plan, no matter what is happening. And so that's what's going on in their minds, and we can break it down, rejoice always. I always feel the need to be careful here. The scripture does not teach us to rejoice because something is terrible. Okay? We don't say, oh, my good friend just died. I'm so happy about it. What we do say is, my good friend died. And the reason people die is because this creation is broken because of sin. Things do not work the way they should go. And I don't rejoice over death itself. But I can rejoice if my friend was a Christian. I don't rejoice about their death, but I can rejoice that they're with God. Even if my friend isn't a Christian, I can rejoice that I have hope. 
I can rejoice that I might have the opportunity to tell others about that hope. This is not to say we should be happy about everything that goes on. It goes so much deeper than that. He says, pray continually. This does not mean walk around muttering prayers nonstop 24-7 all the time. That would be weird. What he is saying is in every situation, no matter what is going on, we are always seeking the Lord's will and being thanking or thankful for what God is doing. And he says to do this in all circumstances. Give thanks in all circumstances. Again, not give thanks for all circumstances, but in all circumstances. To say, I'm suffering and I'm struggling right now, but I know the Lord has not abandoned me. And I will thank him for that. I don't know how this illness will turn out, but I know that God has a plan. Whether it's to be with him or to be healed, I will thank him that he has a plan, even in my sorrow and my suffering. Give thanks in all circumstances. Have you ever wanted to know the will of God for your life? Paul says right here, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You know, when I was a youth pastor and I would counsel youth a lot, that would come up a lot. I just want to know what God wants for me in my life. If I just knew that God wanted me to do that, I, I would do it. Here it is. This is God's will for our lives. Rejoice, pray, give thanks, wash, rinse, repeat. When things are good, rejoice, pray, and give thanks. When your world is falling apart, Rejoice, pray, give thanks. Come alongside one another. Point them the truth of God's word and the grace of the gospel that they might rejoice, pray, and give thanks. And then finally, Paul turns to a very difficult topic that I'm going to cover next week. But in verses 19 through 22, he says, Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all, holding on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. We'll look at this more in depth next week because it's so important. But just for today, the essence of what Paul is saying here is that when God speaks, we must listen. When God speaks, we must listen. To be a peace-filled, gospel-believing, gospel-demonstrating world, we must listen when God speaks. And God has spoken to us through the word of God. We must be a church of scripture. Again, we'll come back to that next week. You know, when I'm shopping for something, I like to do it online. I walked into Walmart the other day looking for something and I spent about five minutes and went, what in the world am I doing? This is crazy. I can do this on Amazon. Yes, I'm one of those people. (laughs) I want to see a video of that thing. I want to hear somebody talk about it for half an hour and demonstrate all the issues. I want to read all the different reviews and and hear all people's experience with it. I want to see it in action. And yeah, I, I would love to, if I could, go into a store and pick it up and work with it or go to somebody's house and say, how does this work? I think advertisers understand this. We want to see what we're buying before we buy it. So we have commercials showing how awesome something is. We have the online reviews. We have product placement in, in movies. Boy, if Captain America drinks Coca-Cola, I guess I should too. We want to see it in action. The best advertising in the world 
people who just use a product in their day-to-day lives and just talk to other people about it. The best evangelism strategy is the church of Jesus Christ being the church of Jesus Christ and letting others see it so they can say, you've got something I need. People in this world are looking for peace. They're desperate for it. They're finding every possible thing they can chase down to give them peace. And so often, time after time, the thing they cling to for peace does not give them peace at all. And so God holds up the church and says, look at what my son has done. And Paul says, if we're going to demonstrate the gospel of peace to this world, we need to look at how we lead and how we treat our leaders. We need to look at how we treat others in the church and how we relate to God in our day-to-day lives. The world needs to see the peace of the gospel in action in the local church. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, these are hard teachings because we come together and, and I know there are people here that are struggling. And they're looking for peace and maybe they're not finding it in their lives. And it might seem like the last thing they want to hear about is church leadership or relationships within the local church or that they need to be praying more. And yet, God, I think of those words, this is your will for us through your son, Jesus Christ. We need churches. We need local gatherings of brothers and sisters saved by Jesus Christ, treating each other differently than how the world has taught us, with a different standard based completely on the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, I want the world to be able to look at us as Orchard Community Church and look at other churches around the world, around our country. I want them to be able to look at these churches and say, I need what those people have. But God, that means that we need to start looking at ourselves differently as well. We don't just come here to consume and to be lifted up or just to be fed. We come here because there's a mission that's going on through the local church. And we want to be a part of that. And so I pray that we would take seriously how we treat one another. The words we use, the things we post, the gossip that we might be tempted to share. May we be different because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray for the leaders of this church, myself included. May we be different because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray for each of us as we go from this place in the day-to-day moments of our lives. May we be different because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And through all of that, may people see the peace of Jesus Christ in our lives. And may they ask how they can have that peace too. And I pray that we will be ready with an answer to point them to your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.